This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. In 1968, Robert Clark was 13 years old when he stood before a judge on a charge of vandalism. He was sentenced to a term of four months in the state training school for troubled youth in Kearney, Nebraska. Little did he know that he would never be free again. This is the story of a scared kid drawn deeper and deeper into the pit of incarceration and violence until there was no way out. This is the story of a youth who at the age of 14 was too young to be placed in general population of the Nebraska State Penitentiary, so was instead put into solitary confinement until he turned 16. This is the true story of Robert Clark, told in his own words and with interviews with friends and family. My name is Patrick Velasquez. Uh, I live in San Diego, California. I have been living here for about 32 years now. Bob is my nephew. His mother is my sister. And so that's our relationship. We actually lived together for a short period of time back in Omaha when I was a, we were both children. Bob is almost the same age as I am. I think I've got less than a, a year older than him. My sister is 20 years older than me. And so Bob is right about my age. And for a while, we both lived at my mother's house. My sister had moved in with her kids, and Bob and I went to school together for a short period of time. So were you were you living there when Bob was uh, was arrested on the um, vandalism at 13? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I stayed in Omaha until I was about, well, sometime in my mid-30s. Okay, okay. So you two were grew up like almost like siblings, basically. Yeah, in a sense. I'd say even though I was his uncle, technically... I'd say we were more like cousins. Right, right. So, you know, his mom filled us in, Joan filled us in on his kind of early childhood and his dad. And um, maybe give us your perspective on what Bob's life was like uh, before the age of 13. Okay. My recollection is, you know, my sister had a pretty tough life. She she married a guy who was not a very sound person, I, I guess, Bob's father, who I believe was also named Robert. And, um, you know, he was an alcoholic. He beat my sister sometimes. I had to witness that. Um, he called her racial slurs. And so those were the things that Bob had to witness when he was a young kid. And uh, at a certain point, pretty early in his life, his father left the home. So my sister was pretty much on her own then. Uh, a lot of this, I don't know if you've read Bob's biographical book, but he talks about his childhood and the fact my sister actually had to give up three of her kids to social services because she, she couldn't financially support all of her kids. So she had a hard time and the kids had a hard time as well. She was able to hold on to Bob and his, actually his older sister, Debbie, who's, um, oh, she's about six months or so older than me. And then also Bob's brother, Bill. So, um, you know, I saw what they went through, and I could see it in Bob. That You know, he was very much to himself as a child, I remember, um, was not very outgoing. And even though he and I got along well, he was kind of a hard person to get close to. And uh, you could just see he was in a lot of pain. And then when he was very young, by that time, his his sister moved. My, my sister moved around a lot, and they were living pretty close to us, but I, I started not to see them quite as often. And the next thing I knew, my mother told me that Bob had been arrested, and, you know, I, I followed all the news from then on. It just seemed like his life was a constant series of arrests. 
after that. I can remember him, um, at least this is my recollection of him as a very young teenager stealing a car, breaking into somebody's house and, and stealing their jewelry, I believe, and, and then uh, physically assaulting somebody. So all these things piled up on him. At times it was like he was scheduled to go to court for one offense and then he, he went out and, and committed another one. And you know, I'm, I'm a professional educator. I'm retired now. I'm not a counselor, but I've worked with a lot of youth. I was a university administrator and professor for over 25 years. So I can see now, you know, I, I did basically Bob was crying out. You know, he was in pain and he was crying out for support and attention. I guess the only way that he could. And again, my, I think my sister did the best that she could, but her, you know, her resources were very limited too. And we were a, we were a working class family. There wasn't really anybody else in the family that could help. So bottom line, you know, Bob had a, a rough upbringing and got into trouble. And then like a lot of young kids, um, you know, once they got into trouble, I can remember when he went, well, we used to call the boys reformatory. I don't know the formal term, but out in Kearney, Nebraska, there's a institution for young kids, minors. And Bob was sent there for a period of time. And that's, that's sort of, um, like an academy for, you know, training young convicts to be older convicts. And so he, he was never able to get out of that pattern of crime once he got sent to Kearney to the reformatory. And, um, then later on, he was sent to the state penitentiary, and that's where I got a little bit more involved. His younger brother, Bill, also got locked up for armed robbery, uh, and I was closer to Bill, actually. When you know Bob got sent away at 13 years old, I started hanging around pretty closely with his younger brother, Bill, at the time when we were I was in college and Bill was still finishing high school. And so we got pretty close, and then the next thing I know, Bill... Um, was arrested for armed robbery and he was sent to the state penitentiary and I think some of that was to, to get closer to Bob. You know, my sister and Bill used to go visit Bob very regularly in the penitentiary and I think Bill really idolized Bob and I think in some ways he maybe subconsciously got into crime himself so he could be closer to Bob and so so there they were both doing time at the same place and at the same time and, and so my sister was now going to visit both of her sons in the penitentiary and uh, I used to go with her every once in a while and and by that time I had become um, a, an activist I guess you could say in the local Omaha Chicano community and I was the director of a Chicano nonprofit community agency and and so when I went to see Bob and Bill in the penitentiary I ended up meeting some other Chicano inmates and they actually had a Chicano inmate organization so I started visiting the penitentiary a lot more regularly and not only to see Bob and Bill but also just to try to be supportive and, and be sort of a sponsor for the Chicano inmates organization so I I saw a lot of things I can tell you more about if you like, but, you know, I, I got involved in, in some advocacy trying to support inmates' rights, and then I saw what happened to Bob when he, he got into a significant degree of trouble, and so that was really when I think the next chapter started for him. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he he's pretty he's pretty blunt about what happened and very, very honest with us about, you know, the fact that he, after he went, they I mean, they moved him to a man's prison at 14. You know, so, you yeah. know, and we know a lot more now than we did in 1967 about 
what tra- the effects of trauma have on on young adults, you know. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is his case. It just kind of built and built on itself until he was looking at a 122 year minimum sentence. And you know, I'm I'm curious though. I you know, I, Joan didn't let us know that you were uh, uh, an advocate. And um, I I want to I want to reintroduce my my co-host Suave because Suave spent 31 years in Gratisford penitentiary well a few different penitentiaries primarily gratis ford which the time that he was there in pennsylvania was notoriously one of the worst prisons in the country you know Mm -hmm. and he did a lot of the same kind of work but from the inside so he started um multiple latino organizations supporting both people on the inside and actually people on the outside so kids who had parents that were incarcerated he built scholarship funds for he did a, a program a mural a mural program from prison that brought murals from the inside to the outside and Philadelphia and his the program while he was there put up more murals in the city of Philadelphia than any other organization has ever done and so I think you two have a lot a lot in common just one from the inside and one from the outside in terms of advocacy work and it's really it's it is interesting to talk uh, and hear this because I I would imagine you know that I'm, I'm saying all this to get to this I would imagine in a city like Omaha in a state like Nebraska it was a pretty a pretty you know, forward thinking, progressive, you know, idea to do prison reform work, especially for incarcerated individuals that were from marginalized communities. I can't imagine that there were a lot of those going on before you got involved. And it's it's kind of interesting yeah. side story to this. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. And uh, I mean, obviously, Omaha, that's why one of the reasons why I left Omaha, it's a very conservative state and that was one of the interesting parts about it man it, at the time that i lived in omaha it was probably about the state was probably about 95 percent white but when you went inside the walls man it was like it felt like the majority of the inmates were black and latino and, and the number of native americans as well and so um there was not a lot of empathy when i for example i, I one time i took my state senator to Lincoln, Nebraska, where the penitentiary was, at the time that Bob was locked up, got, I had been contacted by another group of inmates, a multi-racial group called the Inmates' Rights Organization. And after I talked to them, and, and I really got a picture of how bad the situation for the inmates in the penitentiary, I, I talked to my state senator, and I, I talked him into going there with me to meet with the Inmates' Rights Organization. He did, but yeah, there just wasn't a lot of empathy for what inmates were going through there was just sort of this classic conservative perspective that whatever they have whatever is being done to them is probably what they deserve suave um i'm sure you've got some questions and comments because this i mean patrick's turned into quite an interesting interview all of a sudden <laughs> yeah yeah my, my my question for you mr patrick first of all thank you for taking your time and thank you for being an advocate for people behind the wall. I think people that become advocates don't get enough credit for the work that they do. You know, but I'm wondering, did you watching Bob go through his journey, you know, that led him to prison, motivated you in any way in becoming the advocate that you became? Yeah, definitely. Um, but not only Bob, but also his younger brother, Bill. Um, I, there's no doubt that what I saw them going through made me um, made me want to fight for the, the rights of the inmates and especially what was going on there. And it just seemed to me like what was there was a certain layer of institutional neglect, you know, apathy on the part of the administration for, for toward the inmates. One of the things I remember was that 
it was like if, if you wanted to um, if you wanted to get out, if you were in there doing time and you wanted to get out, the best thing you could do was just to sit in your cell all day and all night and not do anything, then never leave your cell. Because if you went out into the yard or the general population, like the, you would be harassed by the guards. They would you know, wait until you were ready to accumulate some good time, and then they'd trump up some charges, always for the same thing, you know, being being in a unauthor- unauthorized area or disobeying a direct command. And it was always their word against the inmates, and, and so they just harassed the inmates, and, and the, those inmates that were trying to do things like, like them, some of them had a job for a while, Bob had a job behind the walls, he was working um, for some sort of factory, I don't know if you all remember the old company called Starter, Starter used to make these athletic clothes. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And they had a, a they had a factory behind the walls in the Lincoln Penitentiary when Bob worked there for a while. But none of that counted toward him getting out any earlier. And my nephew Bill used to he took community college classes behind the walls, and he talked to groups of of young kids that were getting into trouble. They used to bring behind the walls, and and none of that counted. But it was like they had a big system to penalize you and tack on more time. But if you wanted to get out earlier some way, there was not, you know, nothing, there was no system for that. So it was like rehabilitation was at best, just a, not even an afterthought, man. So, so. And and then I, I got really, I think, upset when, you know, I, when I was going to, to see Bob and Bill, and I'll, I'll never forget the conversation I had with Bob at one point when he told me, he said, Patrick, you know, I, I, it doesn't even bother me to be, to do time anymore. And, and he said, um, I'm institutionalized, man. I've been here for so long that doing time doesn't really bother me. He said, what scares me is the idea of getting out and having to try to hold down a job and take orders from somebody and and he, you know he didn't have any confidence in being able to do that and right around that time my sister told me that bob said had told her that he had a conversation with the warden and the warden told him bob if, if you can do another year or so without getting into trouble we're going to move you to a, a minimum facility and um if you can do a couple of years in there without getting into trouble, I'll recommend you for work release. And if you can stay in work release without getting into trouble for a year or so, then I'll recommend your parole. And so he was looking at a process of possibly getting out in about five years. And that's when he got into some kind of a major altercation with some of the guards there. And um, then they threw him into the hole basically indefinitely. And when my sister was telling me, you know, Bob's been locked up in the hole now for, I don't know what it was, like six months, I said, wait a minute, is, that's against the law, isn't it? So I was, again, I was the director of this nonprofit agency. We had a relationship with one of the local law schools in Omaha. And so we had a program where there were um, law students working at our community center. And I told one of them about it, and he said, you know, I'm not a lawyer yet, but that doesn't sound legal to me. And so this law student and I drove down to Lincoln and, and we set up a meeting with Bob and he told the law student all the things that had happened to him and all the things he had done to try to challenge the fact that he'd been really just thrown into the hole indefinitely. But I guess after he got into a fight with these guards, the other guards went to the administration and told them, you know, we, we won't work anymore, man. We won't show up for work if this guy's out in the yard. And so they locked him up in solitary and kept him there 
indefinitely. You know, the the law student I was with was just shaking his head, saying, "Man, this just does not seem legal to me." But again, he was not an attorney; he didn't really have any authority to challenge it. So there was really nothing we could do. But that's when I was just really coming to the conclusion that you know the system is really screwed up, and and there's like there's no recourse, even if they blatantly break the law in the way that they imprison inmates. There's, there's nobody that'll do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, Nebraska still doesn't have a good time law on the books. There's an organization called Nebraskans for Prison Reform that I'm working with. They have a, le- a, a piece of legislation that will likely pass. Nebraska is also an interesting state because there's only one house. There's no, there's just the Senate. There's no, um, there's no House of Representatives. But yeah, it'll likely, it'll likely pass. It'll likely pass. But they've got that complete lunatic governor right now. Mm-hmm. You know, lock them all up forever and kill them if you need to, kind of guy. I mean, he's a total nutcase. Yeah. So they're they don't want to push it across his desk so they're waiting to run it through the senate so that they can actually get a governor that'll sign it and the thing about this particular law is because of bob working for so many years he would actually be eligible for parole right away if this passes oh so okay well let me ask you a question patrick um sure, sure. what race they got patrick down in nebraska is he's bob? down as a latino yeah bob i mean is he's down as a Latino? Is he's down as white? You know how how they got him down in the box? You know, I'm not sure about that. If they, if I imagine they have classifications of the inmates, but I'm not sure that my guess would be that they might go by his his father's ethnicity. And you know, Bob's Bob's mother, my sister, is a full-blooded Mexican, and Bob's father was white. So so he's half and half, man. But again, my guess is that he might self-identify as white himself. I'm not really sure, but. I'm guessing that they would probably go by his um, father's ethnicity, which would be white. Okay, and no, and I asked that question, man, because as an advocate, do you think that Bob got a fair shake in Nebraska? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I don't think there was ever any empathy for him or any understanding. And it's like uh, Kevin was saying, man, that in those days they didn't really know or probably even care about the trauma that young people go through in their lives and, and all the variables that might contribute to them breaking the law especially at such a young age and there was no administrative or legal or institutional emphasis to to try to um basically intercept where he was at the time you know i i hear about these programs that exist in some places like you know supposedly kamala harris set one up in the bay area or in oakland where first offenders you know get all these wraparound services and counseling and resources and so forth to make sure that they they basically end the cycle of crime when they're young or when they committed their first offense but there was nothing like that for bob and i don't see um any kind of i never saw any degree of empathy for him but but again i don't think there was you know he was probably alone or or unique in that sense i think it was more just an overall institutional attitude I, i would say that you know bob like some of the other inmates there that i met you know when bob was doing time in the nebraska penitentiary and he was still in his 30s um he was a big guy man he was a big rough dude and in those in those days at least i don't know if it's changed but in the penitentiary you had to use force in order to survive i could tell you about that a little bit right but i also know yeah, that I'm sure, I'm sure you know man. i also know that in my journey in 31 years i had like 87 misconducts from fighting with guards, fighting mm-hmm. with inmates, contrabands, drug charges, having relationship, inappropriate relationship with officers, and it mm-hmm. still don't add up to 240 years. 
Yeah, I hear you. You know, it, it really don't want to add up. So where I'm getting at is, what was Bob's initial charge? What, what did he you went to jail for? You know, like, I don't care if Bob had a fight with the warden. It too don't constitute for him to be in jail for the rest of his life, right? For right. fighting with the warden. Right. Right. It's Nebraska's yeah, fault. Yeah, my, my, it's my Nebraska's understanding fault. Is, yeah, going back to my recollection, which is probably not all that great, but what I remember is when he had that altercation with the guards, they put some kind of jacket on him that they called habitual criminal. And they basically said, okay, you are, by virtue of assaulting these guards, you are now classified as a habitual criminal. And so basically we're entitled to keep you in solitary as long as we want. And it seemed like they, that's when they piled this something that really amounted like to a lifetime sentence for him. And, so, and I don't even know if that was all done administratively. I, I don't know if the guard, I don't know if the guards ever pressed charges against him i mean they had to they they had to administrations prison administrations cannot just add time to your prison sentence it had to be done that's what i would uh, say it had to be done they charge you they give you a street charge you go out to a trial take a plea deal or or go to trial and they give you the time but still we're talking about a 13 year old kid that was put in a man's prison 50 what two years ago yeah 52 years ago I know people in the penitentiary that's been in and out with two or three bodies mm-hmm. and they never served 52 years. I yeah, know people I in the penitentiary I know people in the penitentiary that served their whole time in solitary confinement and are walking the streets mm-hmm. now. You know, so mm-hmm. this is an injustice what the Nebraska correction uh, 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 Department of Correction has done with Bar Clark. And America should yeah. be in an art role. When America hit this, this should be in an art role. That you put a 13-year-old kid, a 13-year-old kid in general population in a man's prison, and you expect him not to protect himself? Are mm-hmm. you crazy? Yeah. Are y'all crazy, yeah. Nebraskans? Y'all got to be crazy. Yeah. And if you yeah, fast forward... It was, it was crazy. And if you fast forward to today's time, you know, the United States Supreme Court even ruled that you cannot keep a juvenile in prison for the rest of their life. So therefore, Bob should at least be given the benefit of the Miller versus Alabama mm-hmm. decision for, the, for yeah. the sake of getting out of jail. And somebody should challenge it, right? There's mm-hmm. no way in America there's nowhere in America that we, the citizens, should allow the Department of Correction to put a, 15, a 13, 14, 15 year old kid in a man's prison and then now expect hmm. him to protect himself. That is an injustice. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, and I don't think, um, you know, that, this is one of the things that, that I know we talk about all the time, man, that, you know, the social class dimension of incarceration in the United States, that if you're poor, working class, and, and 
you know, a higher percentage of people of color are, you don't have the legal resources, then it almost is, doesn't even matter what the system does to you because you don't have the legal resources, you can't challenge it. And so I think at, at any point in this journey, you know, if Bob had had access to a, a good lawyer, you know, if his parents had been wealthy, then he might have successfully challenged this a long time ago, but he's, he's never in his life had the resources to do that. I mean, I think that the next step for us as concerned citizens is to start a campaign, a national campaign, where people mm -hmm. across the country get to write their, the governor of Nebraska and demand the release mm -hmm. of Bob Clark, period. And every Mexican-American organization across the country should get involved because we talking about one of your own. Yeah, you I know, hear you. Because there's no way in the world you or anyone can tell me play a race don't play a part in this. It has everything yeah. to do no, with I agree. it. Everything to do I with agree. it. You know, and if y'all hearing this in Nebraska and y'all feel uncomfortable, DM me, LD Gonzalez, eleven twenty at gmail.com. And we could talk about it. You come on the show and talk about it. But what y'all doing with Bob Clark is an injustice. It's an injustice. You know, y'all basically Yeah, what we would need to do, I think, it, it seems to me like what somebody would need to do is to to be able to write down basically just bullet point everything that was done to him and the charges and, and the sentencing and so forth that amounts to all these years that he's been sentenced to. And, you know, again, he probably needs an attorney or at least a, a, an experienced advocate to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, but, but But America, America should be ashamed, you know, if we call this public safety, you out of your mind. This is a mm -hmm. kid. This is a child, you know, that's been in jail 52 years since the age of 13. Mm -hmm. And never even kill no one. Yeah, and never even. Kill yeah, I hear you. And he's yeah. um, he's he's about the same age as me, so he's he's getting close to seventy years old. And you know, he's what what is he going to do to anybody if he gets back on the outside? Man, he's not. Who, who is the longest? Who is the longest serving prisoner in Nebraska? Anybody know? It might be his. No, it might, no be idea, his it might be his. Might be his roomie, <laughs> Noble. Noble, yeah. yeah, it could be. I don't. I'm not sure. Yeah, but Bob's uh, Bob's up there, you know. No, oh, Noble's uh, in from Kansas actually, because Bob got transferred. But you know, yeah, uh, yeah, Bob might be the longest serving inmate currently in Nebraska. And that counts for something. That counts for something. And if taxpayers is are good with keeping a 13 year old kid in prison for more than 52 years, then that should be a shame. Yeah. Where Where are the Brian oh. Stevensons? Where are the Brian Stevensons yeah. in here? Where are are, are, are the advocates, you know, where are the lawyers that claim that we fighting for justice and protecting children's rights? Y'all need to come out and look at this case, period. Well, what about the, the organization that, Kevin, that you mentioned, the one in Nebraska that's working with inmates, or do they have the, the legal knowledge or the capacity to put together some kind of case like that for Bob? Or? Yeah, yeah. so I, I sent her the information on Bob's case, and they're, they want me to to message them when we put these episodes up so that they can mm. the, the, so that they can uh get get on this i mean they're very very much um you know interested in his case and because they're doing legal reform in nebraska you know he's got he, he and his, he's been in so long i think the thing that that has really been missing is having that advocacy for him and you know he's basically buried in the system right now no other than than us and and you and you know some other people that we know you know there aren't a lot of people that know know about his case and know who he is so i think a lot of the a lot of what's going to help is just publicity you know and we're not we're not kim kardashian 
but we we do have a good platform. I mean, we're, we got events coming up with pretty high level people, you know, some people that are connected. And but I think the the thing is is there's there's kind of two paths to this. One is help Nebraska get that legislation passed um, that gets mm. the good time law involved, and also figure out a way for them to be held to account for putting a 14 year old in a men's prison and then immediately putting them into solitary confinement for two years because. Brain science tells us that Bob was not capable of making rational adult decisions at that age. And then you add to it the trauma of being in a in a in solitary, which is also I mean, solitary is by most countries, it's a human rights violation. So right. it's a crime. I mean there's just Yeah, I've heard from several inmates, man, that tell me and, and Suave knows this better than me, but but they tell me that, man, you, you do a week in solitary and, and your mind is probably never the same again. Well, I've done seven, and my mind is still trying to find himself back home. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know, too, Kevin, if, you know, I, I think one of the, in a ways, it's a disadvantage now. My, my sister worked really hard, I remember, to try to get Bob transferred out of the Nebraska penitentiary to that federal pen in Kansas, because I think he either would have been in solitary forever, or they probably would have killed him there. And so it was good that he got transferred to Kansas. But now, yeah. like, if there's advocates for him in Nebraska... You know, it's going to be hard for them to have any kind of close access to him. And, and so that, that kind of serves as a disadvantage. I, I know one of the people in Nebraska that was always pushing for prison reform was a Nebraska state senator named Ernie Chambers. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about him or... No. No, when I was living in Nebraska, it's like you said, it's, it's they have a unicameral. They had only the state senate with 50 senators. And Ernie Chambers was the only black or the only non-white senator at that time and ernie was just a tireless completely committed advocate for all kinds of social justice issues and i know that ernie was um very involved also with with um efforts for prison reform but again it was hard to get anything done now my understanding is that senator chambers has been termed out you know they, they finally you represented north omaha which was basically the part the, the biggest part of the black community in omaha and he represented them for decades in the state Senate, but they finally turned him out. Um, I don't know. I've heard rumors that he might try to run again once the other person's term is up. But Ernie might, it might be worth trying to connect with Ernie Chambers in Nebraska, you know, because he, he was also very skilled at being, being able to get bills through the legislature that you might think didn't have a chance. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely look him up. Curious. Um it's it's just such a weird state because of that too with the single house and right. you know and the i mean <laughs> the governor they have right now is just he's he's, he's a lunatic he's a nut <laughs> he needs to be in a psych wall well how is the parole board there i know that they, all they could you know the governor could i suppose overrule any recommendations or decisions for parole but uh do you all have any sense of how the parole board is now in nebraska or? i d i don't i mean i think I think given Bob's age and the the length of time that he's had, that he hasn't had any infractions, both work in his mm -hmm. favor though. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he's he's getting up there, and yeah, clearly, yeah. at this point, he's not he's not a threat. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't had any problems really in Kansas since he's been there. Mm -hmm. You know, he worked twenty mm -hmm. years in the embroidery shop too. So I, you know, I don't I don't. I don't really know a lot about Nebraska is such a weird state, and we we've we've only, Bob's is the only case we've covered there. 
So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of learning as I go with them. I mean, if you ask Suave or I about California or Philadelphia, I could probably, you know, fill a few books, but you know, it's mm-hmm. just a, or Pennsylvania, it's just such a, Nebraska is very different than, even than a yeah. antiquated state like Pennsylvania. I mean, it's it's like on another level in terms of it being like medieval punishment time there. Yeah, it is. That's probably a good way to put it. But you know, I think, um, I think the, the good time stuff for him, if that gets passed as his best pathway, other than just public pressure, for like a clemency mm-hmm. and then again will depend on who they elect nebraska is actually moving towards more reforms though and i think mm-hmm. that the legislature is poised to do some things over the next couple of years once they kind of turn over the executive <laughs> yeah i mean well, kevin you, you know I, I should probably know this but um do you know if bob I, i'm going to assume that because of the length of his sentence that he's probably not eligible for, or even close to eligible for parole or he doesn't have a annual parole hearing or anything like that not yet he's it's 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 a, it's a while off i mean i think it's almost another decade before he's even eligible because his minimum uh-huh. right now is 140 144 years i believe or 122 years but you know Jeez. you know i mean the thing is is pete ricketts has turned out which is a huge will be a huge huge change in nebraska uh-huh. i mean there there's not going to uh-huh. be anyone quite as nutty as him that comes in he's like a he what i was i was trying to explain it to somebody he's like a he's a he's a trumper but without any of the criminal justice reform minded stuff <laughs> you know because i mean you could say a lot about donald trump but at least he was trying to make some criminal justice changes you know and he was, he was yeah it seemed like the it seemed like the country has moved toward that what, what i my reading is that it's a lot of republicans are just feeling like we don't want to spend all this money on yep keeping prisoners warehoused anymore and so i don't want my taxes to be paying for that so yeah that's just nothing nothing humane but that's, that's really sad to hear about the governor um i have a lot of friends still in omaha but I, I didn't know he was that bad i i see their uh one of their united states senators nelson on television a lot and mm-hmm. he doesn't seem nearly as bad but uh oh well yeah i mean you know pete his dad was the um was the founder of td ameritrade um, okay. And so he basically, you know, it, it's like one of those things, you know, he, they were, they've, they've owned baseball teams, you know, they, they've, he's run for Senate. It's almost like a, it's like he's doing this as like a hobby to some degree. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like he doesn't have to do this. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the unfortunate thing is he's not that old. He's only 57. So, you know, God, he'll probably mm-hmm. run for some other office. He, he lost when he ran for Senate. Yeah. He a 57 year old nut governor <laughs> that was born with a gold spoon. Yeah. I mean he was he was born it with a gold like spoon. It. So he don't he don't understand and he never experienced the life that Bob Clark lived. Yeah. You know, he never experienced sure. that abusive uh um traumatic experience, you know, watching your dad whip on your mother's ass, right? He never experienced right. getting his ass whipped. He never experienced hunger. He never experienced the pain of going through a system that you know don't care about you. And these yeah. are the type of people that we cannot keep putting in office. Because right. to him, to him, being the governor of Nebraska, it's like playing golf, it's like playing baseball. It's a game. Mm. Playing with people's lives is a game for him. He don't take yeah. this serious. He don't care if he went tomorrow and he go about his life and you know, living his little um, um, um white picket fence with probably a white horse in the back who knows he don't yeah. he don't care that's too bad 
you know, so I say to well, Nebraska Rick, I, I, I got to get ready to run soon. I, I don't know if you have any more no, questions for me. I, I think that's it for now. I mean, I'm really glad that you came on and it's, it's nice to hear more of, you know, Bob's family's history. I mean, I've been talking to him for a few months and Suave and I've done, have interviewed him. I talked to Noble the other day. Um, and Noble mm. calls me regularly now. You know, I've talked to Joan. We're we're getting ready to talk to Angela, who's the the Christian woman that has done work with him and other. Yeah, I do got, I, I got one more question for you, Patrick. Yeah, it's probably go ahead. If God allow it, and Bob walk out that gate, what would be the first thing you would tell him and do with Bob? Man, I guess I would just ask, what can I do for you, man? Um, you know, I, I'm not a counselor again, but I've learned over the years that. Uh, when somebody's hurting or they're not feeling secure, man, the best thing you can do is just listen and try to show some empathy. So um, I would just welcome him and, you know, just try to be positive and encourage him and tell him to make the most of what what life he's got left. So I don't know what else. It's, it's a tough one, man. Yeah, it's a tough one. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, if we have anytime. If we have any follow-ups, uh, we'll call you. And, you know, I'd, I'd probably yeah, like to keep in touch. I'm curious about some of the stuff if you're, you know, if you want to talk more about the work you did in more detail, I'm sure we, that at some point we'd love to, to chat about it. So, Yeah, that'd be fine. Anytime. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, and Kevin and Suave, I appreciate what you guys are doing, man. I appreciate that. Death by Incarceration was created to look at every aspect of the current criminal justice system. Each week, we will share stories intended to shed light on institutions that viciously target and harm marginalized communities, specifically communities of color. We will interview individuals currently incarcerated, those who have returned from incarceration, prosecutors, defense attorneys, victims, policymakers, and community members working to bring about change. Brought to you by Crawlspace Media, Suave Gonzalez, and Kevin McCracken. Please listen, follow, and subscribe to Death by Incarceration wherever you get your podcasts. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.